Well, good morning. I'm Adam, one of the elders here at Sunrise, preaching in the absence of our senior pastor and giving David a little time off as if, as if it's time off. Everyone's been busy with uh, Vacation Bible School this week. Thank you to Leslie for leading that and to David for teaching and for all the volunteers in the orange shirts. It was a great week from what I could see and yesterday was a great celebration for the children. So thank you for that. I'm going to preach this morning on Psalm 1. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do. Go ahead and open it. We're going to put the text of Psalm 1 on the screen, as you'll see. So if you don't have your Bible, you can look up there. We don't know exactly who wrote Psalm 1. It could have been David. Some of these words sound like some of his from other psalms. Uh, But it's a familiar psalm probably to many of us. I memorized it. My grandfather actually paid me $10 when I was eight or 10 years old to memorize this psalm in the King James. Uh, And I did, you know, uh, crammed in about 30 minutes and barely got it out, got my $10 and rode to the gas station to buy some chips and soda or wherever we went. I don't remember where. But it's still in there. And uh, I think that's what he had in mind. To be honest with you, I chose this psalm to preach this morning because I just wanted an easy, straightforward psalm to preach. You know, last time I preached, I preached on some controversial social topics, and I thought, I don't want to get a reputation. I'm just going to preach on Psalm 1, right? Turn from your sin, study the Bible. Amen. (laughs) Unfortunately... Well, fortunately and unfortunately, as I began to meditate on this psalm, it got more complicated, it got more difficult, and I realized it's not quite that simple. Let's, uh, let's read it. You might hear me use some different words, because remember, I memorized this in the King James years ago, and then went to the NIV, and now we're using the ESV, and so there's some different words in there that we'll talk about, but we'll start just by, by reading it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor uh, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As I was wont to do, when I chose this psalm, it is tempting to read this as a set of instructions for how to be a good person, how to be a Christian, and how to get into heaven. But as I pondered it and thought about it and studied it and listened to Alan's old sermon from 2015 on it and listened to a whole series of sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones on it, I, I had to face the fact this is a more difficult truth. It's a hard truth that's presented in this psalm. It's a very hard truth. It makes a profound proposition to us, actually. 
And that is that there's only two kinds of people in the world. It's painting a picture of two kinds of people. And it's challenging, with us, challenging us with that. It's an observation, really, or an illustration of these two kinds of people. The blessed man who is like the tree planted by the stream and the ungodly man who is like the chaff that the wind drives away. And it's a call for us to examine ourselves and to think about the fruit in our lives and to ask ourselves, which one am I? Well, I really didn't want to preach a sermon that made everybody ask themselves those kind of hard questions this morning, but the psalm stand, this psalm stands at the beginning of the book of Psalms like a guardian. You know, the Bible is so much more real than we wish it were sometimes. Just like with this sermon, sometimes we just want to open it and have it make us feel better and have it tell us what we need to hear and want to hear. And we go searching for those scriptures and we come to one like this and we just gloss over it and it makes us feel better. But if you pause and think about it, it's a hard truth. It's a profound proposition. And this first psalm calls us to examine ourselves before you enter in to the psalms. Examine yourself. It's honest. It's real. Do I have this happiness? And am I... Am I like the growing and fruit-bearing tree, or am I not? So to start off, let's define some terms. Blessed is the first word here. This word also, I struggled to figure out exactly what it means, and I think the simplest translation is it just means, it means happy. I tried to avoid that in my study. I didn't want it to sound too glib and too silly. And, too, and, and it is, it's not just a fleeting happiness and a giggling happiness. It's, a, it's an abiding and deep joy and peace in your heart. But it is happiness. You might recall Jesus' first sermon began with a similar word in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He began his ministry with this same type of word. Why does the Psalms begin with this word? Why did Jesus begin with this word? Well, it's because the search for happiness is universal. Again, the Psalms are real. They are hitting us where we are. Are you happy? Do you have an abiding happiness? The whole world is searching for this and always has. Since the beginning of time, in every culture, in every land, can I be happy? I see, I look at the world around, er, around me, and I experience death and pain and disappointment and difficulty. Can I be happy in this world? If so, how can I be happy, deeply happy, permanently happy? The psalm presents us with a picture of the happy man this is an enjoyment of the spiritual peace and joy that results from a right relationship with God. It's a deep and abiding happiness. And again, Psalm 1 makes this incredible proposition that there is such a thing in this world of a deep and abiding happiness. But it also challenges us, as, as we'll see, because it says that this happiness is not a function of what you do. This is the hard part. 
It's not a function of what you do. And it's not a function of your circumstances. If you try to chase it and manufacture it, you won't find it. The happiness described in this psalm is a byproduct of who you are. That's challenging. It's a byproduct of who you are. Not what you do. Not what circumstances you're in. The word man, we're talking about the blessed man, obviously is a representative person. This is not a gender-specific thing. It's a manish is the translation. It's the word used for mankind. It's a general word, so let's don't get hung up on that. We're using the man as a representation. The next word I want us to focus on before we start moving through is the word wicked. Because we got a contrast here between the blessed and the wicked, the tree and the chaff, You will make a mistake walking through this psalm if you interpret the word wicked in some kind of cartoonish, psychopathic, evil way, because then your your comparisons will be too extreme, and you'll survive that comparison much more easily if you're not a psychopath. The word wicked here is really more properly translated ungodly. And what it's referring to is someone who does not walk in the ways of God, someone who does not take their direction from God. They're living on the horizontal. They're not, they do not know God, and they are not following him. That's what it means. This person might be funny, polite, kind, but they're not following God. That, in the biblical terms, is ungodliness or wickedness. Not giving God his due is wickedness. So make sure we get this comparison right from the beginning. It's of the godly man and the ungodly person, not some cartoonish, devilish person, murderer, someone burning down churches or tearing things down all the time. It's just an ungodly person. So verses 1 and 2 introduce us to this happy man by telling us first what he does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked. What does this mean? I think we know what this means. It means we don't adopt the ungodly way of thinking. The, the blessed man does not adopt the attitudes of the ungodly. I think we read this and we picture ourselves sitting down and pulling out advice from this ungodly person, but that's not really what we're talking about here. This can happen passively. It can be an absorption of ungodly attitudes and ungodly thinking, as happens to all of us to some degree in the culture when we're not aware of it and thinking about it and on guard for it. It can happen passively. When you think about it, you ask yourself, why would, why would a believer ever walk in the counsel of people whose worldview doesn't include God? Why would we borrow their ideas? Why would we absorb their attitudes? Because we know, really, without 
without adopting godly attitudes, their ideas and their attitudes are always going to be wrong about the things that matter the most, about the things that pertain to life and death and judgment at the end of the psalm. Everything that really requires this happy, or that leads to this happiness we're talking about, the unbeliever is going to be wrong about. Why would we not guard ourselves against it? One example from our world today that I think we all know about, and it's taking over the entire Western world, it's the, the latest theory for how to have happiness is to express, to, 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 to reach down deep into your, your innermost, darkest thoughts and to express them. You have to express every strange or odd or even perverted thought that you ever had. The, the, tra- the, 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 tra- the, the pathway to happiness today is to express yourself. That's what we're being told If you suppress your feelings, you're being oppressed and you're oppressing yourself and you're letting the culture oppress you. You're supposed to express them and let them out and give expression to every desire that you ever have. This is authentic you. This is, the, this is what defines you. That's what our culture is telling us now. And you'll never be happy unless you bring it out. You're not supposed to question your urges and your feelings and your emotions. They're valid because they're yours, and this is who you are. This is the truth of the culture now, the pathway to authenticness and happiness. And what it's doing is it's influencing people to give supremacy to their emotions and their feelings. The Bible teaches us to control those, to sift through them, to make sure we're discerning which are good and which are bad. But the way of the world tells us, no, 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 bring them all out and express them all and this will make you happy. It's just the latest example of how wrong the world is. We see it's not leading to happiness. Blessed is the man who turns away from the counsel of people who don't fear the Lord and who are not in submission to him. Blessed is the man who's careful not to passively absorb these ideas. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the path of sinners. Next, this is just the next step of giving voice to our sinful desires, our emotions of adopting sinful ways. We're going to eventually become comfortable with them and seek them out. People who are acting on them, we start to adopt them, we want to act on them, we'll seek them out, we'll just go from standing in the path, or I'm sorry, from walking in the council to seeking them out, to standing in the path where they move, where they travel. We want to seek them out. And then blessed is uh, the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. This is the, the next logical progression. You can see it clearly in the scriptures. Remember, to the unbeliever, sin seems kind of normal. Doing things that are not God's way and aren't taking into account God's way seems like the normal way. 
And following in God's law and submitting yourself to his scripture seems odd. And we look odd when we do that to people. This is how the, the scornful person, the one who rolls their eyes at God, that's how this attitude develops. God's law gets in people's way and it hinders the desires of our heart. And so, sadly, unbelievers tend to grow in a disdain for God and for his people and begin to have scorn for them. Cynicism is the inevitable result of godlessness. You see the progression again from walking in the council to standing in the path to sitting down communing with the scorner, adopting the scornful view even. There's a, there's a progression from a casual or passive influence to an intentional positioning yourself with, with this mindset to actual adoption of the attitudes. You see, you see the progression. So let me stop here and just uh, for a minute and then ask a question. Why does this description of happiness, the blessed man, why does it begin with a negative? Why does it begin with things it tells you to not do? You know, you look in the Bible, you want a way to happiness, show me what I need to do. The first thing it says is, well, don't do this. And you think, well, that's what Christians are always doing. They're always telling me what I can't do. Why is that? Well, this is the word of God, inspired by him. God knows our tendency is to see how close we can get to the world, how close we can get to sinning without actually sinning sometimes. But the main reason is he knows that the defining reality of the world we live in is sin. It is all around us in this fallen world. We live in a fallen world and we've been born into a fallen race. And he knows that's the defining reality of the world that we live in. And so the first thing that we have to do if we're going to find God and find a relationship with God, we have to face that fact. We have to face the fact that we are wrong about everything. We're wrong about who we are, wrong about our sin, wrong about God, wrong about his holiness, wrong about how his justice operates, wrong about how to be saved, wrong about family, wrong about the church. We have to come to terms with the fact that in our flesh, we are wrong about everything. If we don't do that first, the scriptures teach us, we will go down the wrong path. We will choose the wrong path. We'll never be godly. We'll never be happy. So the first characteristic of this truly happy man is that he first confronts the error in his own mind, in his own heart, and in the world and the sin, the sin and the cynicism of it, and he turns away from it. That's step one. Jesus began his ministry by saying what? Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First, turn away. Turn away. Acknowledge your sin and the sin of the world and turn away. So this happy man, the way to be happy like this happy man, you have to first come face to face with your own tendency to sin. This happy man has admitted that his first step must be to turn away from these ungodly attitudes. And in verse 2, it talks about what he does do. He delights. He delights in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord at the time of this writing would have been the writings of Moses. We know from the rest of the scriptures that God continued to inspire the prophets and the New Testament writers. It's the scriptures. The law of the Lord is the scriptures. It's his truth, his inspired word. And this happy man delights in the law. Delights in it. What is delight? What does it mean to delight in God's word? It's a desire to study it and retain it. It's not a chore. It's not a duty. This happy man delights in it. He wants to know what it says, and he meditates on it day and night. That means he's thinking about it. He's wrestling with it. I had a, I have a, well, my law partner now is an old friend of mine. We used to work together years ago. And we traveled together, and we were both Sunday school teachers in different churches. And as we traveled, we sat on airplanes and in hotel lobbies and things. He would tell me about what he was teaching, and I would tell him about what I was teaching. We'd wrestle with the meaning of the scriptures. In the first hour today, Roy was talking about uh, you know what it means in Romans twelve verses one and two to. To offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And I remember my friend and I, this was one of the verses. For many trips, we would sit next to each other and talk about what does it mean to offer yourself as a living sacrifice? You can just gloss right over that and get to the easy parts. But the man who delights in God's word, the, the man who, who meditates on it, wants to know what, is, what does it mean? This is the, the delighting. My friend taught me a lot about how to do that. This word meditates also has a connotation in the original Hebrew that kind of hints at a, at a droning vibration, a constant droning vibration. And I think the image that's being created is that the, the, the happy man treats in, in his life The word is always there. It's always around him. It's always following him. It's the background music that's playing in his mind. It's the thing that's looping, looping. In the the quiet moments, it's what comes back that he thinks about. It's always there, guiding his steps. He meditates in it day and night. When, when, When he does that, he begins to lose his taste, doesn't he, for the ways of the world? This is the key characteristic of the blessed man, not taking wisdom and direction from those who don't know God, but instead taking wisdom and direction from his word. This is what it means to fear the Lord. And in verses 3 and 4, we start to see this further description of him, this analogy, which is also, I think, fairly easy to, to access, this analogy of the tree, 
It says, a blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he shall prosper. This is, again, an easy analogy to see. We can tell this tree is in the rich soil with this continuous supply of water, which is the law of God, God's truth, and it nourishes and it cleanses him from the inside, grows up within him, strengthens him, renews the mind, strengthens the inner being like the tree. And this tree does what it's supposed to do. (laughs) It's supposed to bear fruit. And it does. It does exactly what it's been created to do, exactly what it's intended to do, which is bear fruit. And we can see how easily we can interpret that as the fruit of the Spirit from the New Testament, the fruit of Christ that wells up in the life of the believer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruits of the Spirit. We are to bear fruit like that. The tree, the man... This tree bears fruit at the right time because it's doing what it was made to do. The right fruit at the right time. Then it says, whose leaf also shall not wither. It stays healthy. It stays green. It has such deep roots, this tree. such, Such deep roots taking in this nourishing water. Many people make a profession of faith only to have their leaves wither. But for this blessed one, his faith is evergreen. It continues. It doesn't falter in the harsh elements. Even in the droughts, the trees' leaves stay green. Even in old age, this healthy tree, its leaves stay green. Everyone can appear healthy when the conditions are right, but only this healthy, happy Christian can withstand the winter and the drought and still bear the fruit in its season. In all that he does, he prospers, it says at the end of verse 3. In other words, he's steady, he's reliable, the fruit is inevitable, and it will come. It will come. It is inevitable that this delight in God's word will produce fruit, as in the tree as in the man. Now here's where things start to get a little difficult. Verse 4, in the comparison to the wicked. Remember what I said before, this is not some cartoonish wicked person that we might imagine. It's an ungodly person who, is not, who does walk in the counsel of the world. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. So what is chaff? Chaff is the outer husk of a wheat kernel or of rice or of an oat. It's the outer husk that you take off before you, before you find a purpose for the useful part, the part that's alive. It's the dead part. It's the outer husk. It's the part you throw away. Formless, shapeless, patternless. No roots, no fruit, can't bear fruit. 
And this is the hard part. I already mentioned it. But to say it again, the husk is the dead part. So not only does it not bear fruit or have roots, it cannot. It cannot grow roots and it cannot bear fruit. It doesn't hold within itself that possibility. And it describes, the psalmist describes that chaff and that man as being so formless and shapeless and patternless that the slightest breeze can come and blow it away like dust. That's how the ungodly man is described. Couldn't be more opposite than the description of the tree. But could there be a better description of today's aimless and shifting values and morality, some of which I talked about before? This description is being proven before our eyes every day. The world's views on God and man and justice and family and sex are all wrong, and they're changing all the time. They blow with the wind. They change with the wind. It's all superficial. The ungodly man has no choice. There are no eternal principles for him to latch onto. So everything is changing. Everything is mobile. Everything changes with the wind. And it's all, his truth is always based on narratives. No fixed principles. Here one day and gone the next. But the scripture says the word of the Lord stands forever. I love this verse. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. So this is the difficult part and the profound part of the psalm that started out, it seems so easy. Maybe one to memorize and to remind yourself to read the Bible. Here it gets very profound. There's only two kinds of people in the world. These are not two kinds of trees. These are two things that are very different that are laid out before us. Two things that have no similarities. And it's not a difference in an attitude, and it's not a difference in beliefs, really. It's a difference in nature. One is spiritually alive, one is spiritually dead. These are the two, the only two people in the world and paths in the world, says the psalmist right at the beginning. Then he describes the judgment in verses 5 and 6, the destinies of these two types of men. He says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Often you're reading a psalm like this, and again, it starts out in a way that you're, you're so comfortable with and you're so inspired by. And you think, well, I'm going to send this to my college roommate who's not a believer. And I want them to read this great, inspiring psalm. And then you go down further and it takes this turn to judgment and death and hell. And then you say, I don't know if I, sh- if I can really send that to my college roommate. I don't know if he'll understand it. I'm not even sure I understand it. 
Why do the Psalms so often start out so pleasantly with teaching that I can understand, concepts I can get my head around, and then they just finish with death and hell and punishment? Why do the Psalms do that? Because that's how life is. Again, remember, the scriptures are more real than we want them to be sometimes. This is where life is going. And it is the fear of death and the fear of judgment that is the biggest obstacle to anyone's happiness in this world. We don't talk about it. And if you ask somebody on the street, are they thinking about death and judgment? They'll say no. We suppress it. But everyone knows death is coming. And everyone wonders what is going to happen to them on that day. There is an innate sense in all of us that all of this creation around us and all the things we do and all the things that are done in this world cannot be without consequence. God has revealed himself in the things around us in the creation that he has made. And we all, believer or unbeliever, have a sense that that is coming. And if you don't know what's going to happen, if you don't know that you are going to survive the judgment or stand in the judgment, as it says here, that will plague you. That will plague you in the deepest recesses of your minds. There will be no happiness. There will be restlessness in the heart. For the man who knows death is coming and that the judgment is coming, but doesn't know the Lord. This is really the whole point of the psalm. It's the most defining characteristic of the blessed man. He knows. He can face death. He does not have to live in fear of death, which is the first characteristic of a deeply happy person. That fear is removed. He also knows that because of his Savior, Jesus Christ, he will be stood up. He will be risen up in the judgment. All the scriptures about people who come before the throne of God, even some of the Romans who came before Jesus, what happened? They fell on their face. This is a picture of what will happen when we come before the throne of God and his holiness. We will not be able to stand. He will lift his people up. The righteous man, the blessed man, the only one who's truly happy is the one who knows that he will be made to stand in the judgment. He knows the Lord knows his way. The actual language here is, is knowing. For the Lord is knowing the way of the righteous. He's, he's attending to, to the way of the righteous. He's preserving it. He's sustaining it. And the blessed man knows this. I'm not perfect, he says. I know I'm a sinner, but I know the Lord is sustaining me. He is the one who will lift me up in the judgment because I belong to him. But the Lord does not know the way of the wicked. He is not sustaining it. 
He's not preserving it. He is not upholding it. Left to itself, that way can never take root and it never bears fruit and it will perish. Matthew 3.12, we hear the words of John the Baptist about Jesus. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The ungodly man can suppress his fear of death and his sense of the coming judgment, but deep inside he'll always be restless and fearful. But the blessed man can face death and even the coming judgment with confidence, not in himself, but in God who is knowing his way and who will make him stand in the judgment. I'm going to say it again. Two kinds of people. What's missing from this psalm? The part that makes your heart burn and the part that makes it so profound. It's the complicated middle. It's missing. It's conspicuously absent. I need to, <laughs> I look at it and I'm looking for the description of the third way. Where's the in-between man? That there are only two paths and two destinies. The one who walks in the counsel of the ungodly, the one who doesn't. The one who meditates and delights in the scriptures and the one who doesn't. The one who stands in the judgment and the one who does not. The one who is in Adam and the one who is in Christ. The old man and the new creation. There's Jacob and there's Esau. There's the one who is spiritually dead and the one who is made alive in Christ. There's eternal happiness in heaven and eternal misery in hell. There's one who is like the tree and one who is like the chaff. So this all begs the question, how does a person go from chaff to tree? How does one become the other? We see in verse 3, this is a key word. This is the one that held me up. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. So the blessed man is like a tree, but not just any tree, one that's been planted, and the actual translation is more like transplanted. See, something has been done to him. The truly happy man, the the man with a deep and abiding happiness in this world that we see, we see the two different kinds of people, has had something done to him. A tree can't didn't plant itself, somebody put it there. A person can't bring himself from death to life. Something has to be done to him. Suddenly some of these New Testament scriptures come alive, don't they? John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In other words, if we're to grow and bear fruit, we must be rooted in Christ and we must be abiding in Christ. John told the woman at the well in John 4, 
Everyone who drinks of my living water, he says, everyone who drinks of my living water will never be thirsty again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water leading up to eternal life. So Jesus is the gardener. He gives the life. He provides the water. He ensures the growth, and it's all his doing. The one who defeated death, he's the only one who can take what's dead and make it alive. Ephesians 2, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So this is a call to self-examination. Am I turning away? Am I delighting in the word? Am I getting my nourishment from him? Am I growing in my faith? Have I been planted? I would encourage you this morning to set aside the complicated middleman explanation and ask yourself, these difficult questions. Ask God to search your heart and know your anxious thoughts and to see if there's any offensive way in you and to lead you in the way everlasting. I want to finish just by telling a story from a, I don't remember now, I should. I don't see John Heron in the back. There he is. John, I hope you don't mind. Um, I just wanted to tell a story about the day that John had a stroke a few years ago. The call went out. John had had a stroke and was in the hospital. And I just knew I had to go see him. I think some others probably went to see him. And I got off work that evening and went to the hospital room where John was sitting you know how strokes are. Sometimes they take away your, your faculties of speech. And that was the case with John. He was not able to speak clearly. Um, whatever happens with the stroke, it took away that ability. He could try to speak, but I, I couldn't understand him. I don't think anyone could. But I was going to go sit with John. I figured he needed me. He needed someone, some encouragement. I'm going to go sit with uh, John in his hour of need. And so I got us some food or something and just went to hang out with him in the hospital room. And I'll never forget that evening because John had just had a stroke and John's wonderful wife had passed away just a few years before. John, you know, John lives alone. Sometimes he has family members staying with him, but he's alone. And he was alone in the hospital having had a stroke and he couldn't talk. 
very well. And I sat beside John, and I'll never forget sitting there, listening to John. If you know John, you know John loves to tell stories and jokes. But John was saying things that I could not understand. And I would look over at him. We were watching some game show or something. And I would look over at him, and he would be talking and talking and talking. And I couldn't tell a word that he was saying, but I could see the gleam in his eye that he was telling a a story that he was going to lead to a joke, and he would laugh. And as it would get to the end, he was kind of mumbling, and, and his eyes would light up, and his smile would come on his face, and he'd start laughing, and I would laugh too. I didn't have the heart to tell him, John, I don't know, I can't tell a thing that you're saying. But I'll never forget that night, and I'll never forget driving home. And I thought of it when I was studying about this happy man who has been changed. Not a man who has somehow gone through enough steps to make himself happy. Someone who has had a change inside, been planted by the master gardener, who has been nourished by his living water, and who at that moment, not knowing what was going to happen to him, had a joy in his heart and a gleam in his eye within an hour after this happened to him. Blessed is the man. Let us pray. Oh, Father, how blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but who delights in the law of the Lord. Oh, Father, would you press down this difficult truth in our hearts today and convict us where it's appropriate to be convicted? Confirm and assure us where that's appropriate, Lord, for those who have been planted. Oh, how blessed are you, our Father, and your Son, Jesus Christ, the only Savior. May all of us find our lasting and true joy and happiness in him alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.